Hey, what's happening? It's Jerry Feta, owner, founder, and CEO of Wealth Dynamics, coming to you with a live course today on Sacred Account Saturday. Every Saturday is Sacred Account Saturday when you are uh, in Wealth Dynamics world. So we're going to be talking today about uh, one main topic, and that's going to be max funding your sacred account. Okay, uh, what does that look like? How do you do it? What are the limitations? Why would you do it? Uh, what do you do once you've max funded your sacred account? And we're also going to talk today about what the sacred account is. You might be watching today and this might be a new concept for you, right? So I want to cover that. Now, before I get started, some things that I like to cover every week is, let me have a sip of my espresso here. Number one is I want you to have a purpose for being here, right? Why are you here? Okay. And this is, this is not to challenge, you know, that you should be here. It's why are you here? You're here for a reason. Nobody does anything for no reason. So what is that reason? What do you, do you have that reason ready? I personally found with finances, it's very hard and difficult to learn when I don't know why I'm learning something. When I don't know what I'm going to do with the information I'm learning about, that makes it impossible because it's like I'm learning something that apparently I have no application for, right? Then it's just random information. But now if it's like, oh, I'm going to use it for this or for this reason, I now have a reason to learn. I'm going to be more engaged. I'm going to be more focused. I'm actually going to get more out of the training itself. Okay. So that's the first thing is know your purpose. Second thing is I want you to remove the idea that you cannot learn about finances. Okay. It's a myth, right? Finances are simple. They're easy. Uh, the reason they sound complicated is because banks and wall street and also the government got involved and they complicated the terminology. They made it, you know, difficult sounding so that you like you need them in your life. Right. And the truth is you don't. Okay. Like, like, uh, for example, you look at, you know, JP Morgan Chase Bank, Jamie Dimon, I bet he doesn't sit down with a guy that buys mutual funds. Right. So, so there's a level of understanding that you can get with finances where it's like, I understand this and I don't need to rely on someone else. Now it starts with deciding you can understand, which means I need to get rid of the idea that money is too hard to learn about, or it's difficult or any of that stuff. Right. So here's two things that it comes down to math and vocabulary. Okay, when I hear a word, but I don't know what the word means, I should look it up in a dictionary or on my phone. Okay, everything financial related you can find on Google or investopedia.com, period. Okay, so I should look these things up. That's the responsibility of the person learning. The And, and, and I want to make sure you guys understand where I'm coming from on this. If I don't understand terminology to that degree in that area, I am illiterate. That's my mindset and my viewpoint. Okay. When individuals are illiterate, they're easily enslaved and taken advantage of. If you study history, uh, you know, when countries take over other populations or people are led into slavery, one of the first things they do is they make them illiterate. Okay. They mix up terminology. They make it to where the people feel like they're not capable because they don't, they don't understand the words being used. This. Okay. Now on this topic of, 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 if I have an obligation to trade time for money, I'm not free. Even if I live in the freest country in the world, I'm not free, right? That's, that's my mindset on this because I don't understand how to not have to need this thing of money. Money's not real. I was talking to my godson the other day. We we're showing him gold and silver. I was showing him paper money and I taught him he's 11 years old. Gold and silver is real money. Paper's not, okay? An 11-year-old gets this. So if an 11-year-old gets this, why does most of the population not get it? And it's because the 11-year-old hasn't been marketed to yet. He hasn't received all the information from the banks. He hasn't received all the stuff from Wall Street. He hasn't gotten all of the, the propaganda and the billions of dollars they spend on advertising and, and the logos that they buy on the basketball court so that you see their logo and you feel like that's where you should go put your money. He hasn't got any of that. So he can just accept, yeah, this is just paper. It doesn't mean anything. This is actually real things. It's value. And he's holding the gold up saying, yeah, I understand that this is actually valuable. Okay. So that's the vocabulary. If I look the words up, I know what they mean. Now I'm no longer illiterate. If I don't look the words up, I'm actually contributing to my own illiteracy. Okay. This is the responsibility on you and I, the person learning right now. If I don't actually go look up terms and study this stuff, I'm furthering my financial illiteracy. It's kind of like this quote that Bill Gates had. He said, if you're born poor, it's not your fault. If you die poor, it is. Okay. We're all born financially illiterate. Like as a child, you didn't know what, it, what a sacred account was. You didn't know how loan interest worked. You didn't know about the stock market. You didn't know about passive income. We're all born that way. Okay. Some of us reach for the information. We all have a smartphone. Okay. So are you watching cat videos or are you looking up and learning about finances? Are you getting educated? There's no excuse anymore. 
right? So, so I can't say I didn't know because when I want to know something, I can literally just say, hey, Siri, what's whole life insurance? And Siri's actually looking it up right now, right? That's perfect. I can, I can have that happening right here. Just an on whole life insurances. Okay. All of us can do that. So the, the, you know, if you have a question. And division. Okay, I learned those in second or third grade. I think you guys did too. We don't even need this stuff anymore because it's on our calculators, right? And so uh, Avery says the connection seems to be breaking up. It very well could be. How does that sound now, Avery? Is it still shaky? We switched my Wi-Fi over this week, so it's not totally where it needs to be at. Um, let me know if it sounds okay, if it's, if, it's, if it's improved or still a little bit shaky. So, um, you know, with, with the math on this, it comes down to add, subtract, multiply, divide, which we all learned in grade school. Okay, it doesn't get much more complicated. And again, you can put this on a calculator. Yeah, we might have to just deal with the Wi-Fi today then. It's it's my connection. We just got it switched over. Um, so I'll have to get that debugged and, and get that up and running. Let me see if I can plug it in though to my phone. That might help. Um, so we all we all learned this stuff in school, right? And so we have the calculator, we can look it all up. And so everything we're gonna talk about today, you can do on a basic calculator for the most part. Maybe you need a savings or investing calculator, but those are easy to come by as well, right? So um those are things I like to break down. Is is you know finances are hard because they're actually not. the math yet once we know the words in the math it becomes very easy the second thing is thinking i know it all already if i have the mindset that i know it all i'm not going to learn anything okay like the necessity for learning is gone if i think and i know it all so instead of saying i know it all i want you to ask yourself do i have results Hey, everybody. I think uh, Jerry's connection broke off. Uh, this is Rod with Wealth Dynamics. He should be back in a minute. So um, until then, um, I'll just fill in while he's getting that connection handled. Um, anyways, good to see everyone on. Um, Jerry's going to cover a very important topic on the sacred account. For those who um, already have a sacred account, you'll be able to use this information to understand um, ways to put that to use, how it works, get your questions answered if you are an existing user. And for those who aren't, um, you'll be able to learn a bit about how it works and, and set it up with us afterwards um, and answer any questions so that you feel comfortable and ready to do so. Um, I started working with Jerry in April of this year, and uh, this came after um, studying his book, um, I was a financial advisor previously, and um, you don't really get what you're going to get with Jerry as far as financial advice is concerned, because there's no actual blueprint um, given to you from most agencies. It's just like, you know, selling you a product. 
but this is very much uh, oriented around building you wealth systematically. And I think Jerry's now connecting again. So I will turn it back over. Board slash B client this is where it starts it starts with okay and so um you can reach out on the link here jerry fed it a bit let me just see if i can move my laptop in the link you can also connect with rod in the, in the chat it's gonna come with a free coaching call as well okay so um rod i want to with them um i'm gonna resituate and see if this helps we'll go from there so let me bring rod on really fast all right so we should be live with rod in just one second here yeah can you hear me okay i can yeah Okay, thanks, Jerry, for having me on today. Yeah, absolutely. Try- so if you want to give everyone just a quick intro on, on who you are and, and uh, what your goal is with connecting with them today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I started working with Jerry in April. Um, this came after reading the blueprint to financial freedom and also um, experiencing the results as a client. And so anyone who's new to this, um, I've been a financial advisor for many years and uh, previously Uh, I never really had a blueprint that actually resulted in financial freedom and wealth until I met Jerry and started doing his program. I handled $40,000 in debt. I handled uh, a six-month reserve, uh, started increasing the asset of gold and truly building wealth with this program. So um, I highly recommend that book. It only took me six hours to read. Um, It's a very simple to read book, but it gives you immense financial literacy, more than you'll learn anywhere else. This stuff isn't taught in schools. It's not taught by your parents. It's it's just not available because it's suppressed, right? Because you are, if you are in a financial trap, you're being taken advantage of. And so you'll find in this book, incredible tools to build wealth. So I highly recommend getting that book, starting with it. My purpose in connecting with you is to coach you through the process and uh, answer any questions you may have along the way. So I did put my calendar in the chat uh, for anyone who's on the call now. Just look at the chat and you could book a 15 minute call with me after this um, and we will answer any questions, etc. And that's all. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Rod. So um, what I want to do here is I'm just going to get resituated with my, with my pen, and I want to draw a couple concepts out. But today's topic is about maxing out your sacred account, okay? When I say maxing out, it means putting in the most amount of money you possibly can put in for the year. Um, and, and the benefit of doing that, how you do it, why you would do it, and then what to do once you've done that. Because the, the good news is you maxed it out. The bad news is you can't put more money in this year because you maxed it out, right? So um, the first thing I want to go over is just the concept of the sacred account really quickly. Okay. So the sacred account is a specially designed form of high early cash value dividend paying whole life insurance. I'm going to draw this for you. So you have a good idea of how this works. Okay. So I want to go over a couple of the benefits. Um, cause most of us, when we save money, we save it usually in, um, one or more of the following three places. We're either going to save it with a bank. 
we're going to save it with Wall Street, or we are going to save it with the IRS. Okay, those are the three places most people save money, right? Now, the bank, think about this. You put it in a checking account or a savings account, that's where you save. Okay, now some people, they do it via a mortgage, which is a forced savings plan where you give the bank uh, 25 to 30% of your income that you're never going to get back till you sell your house. That's also a really bad savings plan, right? So the majority of Americans, they heavily save in banks. Wall Street, what is that? That's your 401k plan at work. Okay, that's your retirement account. You're giving that money to Wall Street every month, okay? And then what about the IRS? Who's ever gotten a tax refund? Okay, that's a form of you being on a forced savings plan with the IRS, right? Now, they're keeping it all year. They're overcharging you on taxes. Then they give you that refund at the end of the year. And there's all these great commercials on TV about, oh, I got my refund. No, 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 you you got stolen from. You extended a 0% loan for an entire year and charged no interest. And then at the end of the year, you get that money back as a savings or a refund. That's a savings plan. Okay, so we've all heard this this um, old adage is not just what you make, it's what you keep. Okay, I believe it's not just what you keep, it's also where you keep it. And so when I keep money in a place like a bank, or I keep money with a group like Wall Street, or I keep my money with the IRS, of course I can't build wealth. Because they're using it to build wealth. They're not giving it to me. Like the IRS, when they keep, when they give me my tax return they're, they're with the refund, they're not giving me interest. Okay, the, IR, the, the, the Wall Street, when I put money in the retirement account, Think about the structure of that investment. What's the only guarantee there? It's not that my money is going to be treated safely. It's not that I'm going to get gains. The only guarantee there is that they're going to charge fees. Okay. Same thing with a bank. They're loaning my money out. You know, they're putting it at risk. There is insurance, but the insurance is covered through taxation of me. So I'm really not ever in a place where my money is in a good spot to grow. And so because of that, most people never grow their money. We hear about, you know, like uh, people that are paycheck to paycheck. They're not investing. They're not retiring. Well, because saving money is the linchpin to all of that. If I don't save, I can't invest. If I've got nothing accumulated, I can't retire, right? So here's the sacred account. Instead of putting money with these groups, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it in the sacred account. The sacred account is a specially designed form of high early cash value dividends, paying or life insurance. Okay. That's a really long title. That actually is what it's called. And so for that reason, we just call it the sacred account. It's much shorter to say, and also it is sacred. It's for the purpose of uh, usually four things. So I'm going to use this generally for paying off consumer debt, building reserves, self-financing large purchases, and investing. Those are the four things I'm going to use it for, right? I'm not using it for anything else. I'm not using it for, you know, uh, let's say a wedding that I'm never going to pay myself back for. I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to go spend it on, on, you know, gambling in Las Vegas. It's not going to go to Disney World. Like, it's not these, like, usually when people save money, they blow it. And that's my point. Their savings aren't treated as sacred, okay? Literally, the definition of saving, you're setting something apart. That's the same definition of something that's sacred. It's set apart from everything else. That should be your sacred money. You use it only for these four things. Okay, the average American doesn't use it for these four things. Okay, and so these are why I would use the sacred account. Now, here's the, the benefit of using it. If I don't have a sacred account, I want to make sure you understand how it protects my money, how it keeps it safe. Because again, we're saving. So when I save something, the number one thing I expect that thing to do that I'm saving into is to give me the thing I put into it. If I save food in the fridge, my expectation would be I can go to the fridge and pull the food back out, okay? If I put my car in the garage, I'm saving my car. I'm putting it in the garage. I expect there to be a car in the morning, right? So these are the functions of saving. We wanted to basically protect and keep the thing that I have to preserve it, right? So um, a couple of the benefits with the sacred account, when I put money into it, it's guaranteed to grow. Okay, guaranteed growth. It's guaranteed against loss. Okay, it's protected from taxation. It is protected from creditors. It is protected from lawsuits. Okay, so we have protected from creditors, protected from lawsuits. Uh, it is fully backed, meaning the money that I put in there is put in there is actually there. Um, it's fully insured against insolvency. And then it also has one more protection, and I, and I usually would put this as uh, number five, but number eight, same same uh, list here. 
protection of privacy. It's a unilateral contract between me and the insurance company. It means a one-way contract. So when I take loans, they're not reporting that to the IRS. That's not taxable. They're keeping my information between me and them. It's a unilateral contract, right? So I've got protection of privacy. Um, let me word that a little bit different. Protection of privacy, right? So these are all benefits that I get when I put my money in a sacred account, okay? So the question becomes, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna save money anyways, where should I be putting it? Okay, let's check this out. We can put money in the bank. Is it guaranteed to grow? No, it's not guaranteed to grow. The bank doesn't actually have to pay me anything. Okay, they can continue lowering savings accounts rates. It's already the the national uh, interest rate on a savings account is 0.24%. That came out from the FDIC. So I'm not really getting a lot of growth there. Okay, let's check out the IRS. Do I get guaranteed growth when I get a tax refund? No, I don't. I don't get anything from them. Okay, what about Wall Street? The one thing that they will tell you is they can't guarantee growth. If you go talk to a financial advisor, they'll tell you, we can't guarantee you anything other than the fee. We can guarantee our fees. We can't guarantee performance. Okay. So I don't get guaranteed growth from either of either of those other three alternatives. Okay. The other one here is guaranteed against loss. Okay. Guaranteed against loss means that I can't lose money, right? Contractually, I can't lose money. So let's look at this with, again, Wall Street. Can I lose money there? Okay. Yes, I can. And people have and do all the time. Right. So I can lose money there. People do lose money there. And it's a normal thing. Okay. Second thing is the bank. Can I lose money in a bank? Right. A lot of people might say no to this. No, I can't lose money in a bank. But here's the problem is you actually can. Okay. When a bank is financially insolvent, they are legally required to do something called a bail in. Okay. A bail in means they keep their deposits in order to stay afloat. And that happens before the federal government will bail them out. Right. That's losing money. Right now with a bank, you're also guaranteeing loss because you're making 0.24% a year on interest and inflation is like 9%. So not only is it not guaranteed against loss, you have a guarantee of loss. Okay. So that's happening with the bank. Um, And then same thing with the IRS. Do we have a guarantee against loss with the IRS? You could say so, but the thing is, is you already lost the money with them. They shouldn't take it in the first place. So someone that steals too much from you every month and then says, don't worry, we didn't do anything with it. It's like, well, you shouldn't have had it in the first place, right? Like imagine like someone steals your car. You're in your house, you're watching TV, you know, you're, you hear a noise and you go outside and you watch someone drive off with your car. And then the next day they bring it back and they're like, don't worry, I didn't scratch it. Okay, like, great. Like, I'm glad you didn't scratch it. I have insurance in case you did, but you should never have stole my car in the first place. It's not your car. That's the IRS. That's not their money. They're taking it every month and it's not theirs. And I'm not even saying like taxation is theft. You should never pay taxes. I'm saying, no, no, no. Like, even if you believe in paying taxes, when they give you a refund, it means mathematically they took too much. Okay, line 24 of your 1040 tax return is total tax. That's the amount you actually owe. If below that, the number is bigger and you're getting a refund at the end of the year, it means that you you gave up more than you owed. You gave the IRS more than you should have. Okay, so guaranteed against loss, the sacred account is guaranteed against loss. These other places aren't protected from taxation. Okay, uh, let's start out with the IRS. That is taxation. So it's not protected from taxation because that's how it happened in the first place is taxation. Okay. Uh, Wall Street, you're going to pay taxes on that. Whether it's a 401k or a mutual fund, you're going to pay taxes either now or at some point. Okay. Same thing with the bank, that 0.24% that they charge you, you're going to pay taxes on, right? The sacred account you don't pay taxes on. And the reason why is you're taking loans against it. Loans aren't taxable, right? And I'm not even going to get into yet the function of being able to borrow against your, your sacred account and grow money in two locations at the same time. We're going to get into that in a second. I want to just cover Apples to apples against where you put your money now. Why is this better? Okay. Protected from creditors. Okay. Creditors can take a lien against your um your bank account. Okay. If you have mutual funds, they can they can put they can take liens against that. Generally, your retirement accounts might be protected, right? And then finally, you look at the IRS, like uh the IRS is a creditor. It's a collection agency for the US Treasury. So again, similar to the tax thing, it's not protected from it because that's how it happened in the first place. Um, next is protected from lawsuits. Okay. Again, you can lose a lawsuit and have your bank account garnished. Um, you know, if you have a tax refund coming in and you lose a lawsuit, they can be like, Hey, that's money in the bank. Let's take it now. Uh, if you have mutual funds, those can be taken in lawsuits. Um, and then even something like if you get divorced, that's not really a lawsuit, but you better split your 401k up. Right. So there's even an element of that, that that's at risk. 
Okay. So with the sacred account, again, that's protected against lawsuits. That's at a state level. Uh, and every state is a little bit different on the, the amount of protection that's given. So you want to look at what state do I live in and what are the rules there? But it is something where it's like, hey, this asset to, to some degree or another is off limits. Okay. Um, it's fully backed, right? Which means that the money that I have in my sacred account is actually on the balance sheet of the insurance company as a liability, meaning they know that they owe it to me and they've actually got it on hand. Right. This can't be said about the bank. The bank has the same thing. When I deposit money into a bank, it goes onto their balance sheet as a liability, but they don't actually have the money there. Their reserve requirement is 0%, meaning they don't have to keep anything in reserves when I put money into the bank. Okay. Wall Street fully backed. Nope. They're putting it into the stock market. Okay. That's not backed. That's got, that's up and down, right? Same thing with fully insured. Okay. The money that I have in the bank is that fully insured. Yeah. I do have FDIC insurance. Uh, the problem being the FDIC has enough money in reserves to cover about 2% of deposits, uh, which means that 98% of bank deposits are not insured. Even though they say they are, there's no actual backing. There's no, the, to insure something, you've got to have the money to do it, right? Uh, Wall Street, I'm not insured there. Okay, people lose money in Wall Street all the time. Okay, it's happening this year. And then same thing with the IRS. Am I fully insured with that? I don't really need to be. They owe, the, they owe me that money back. Right. No, I'm not. I'm not insured like against like loss or insured for growth. They're just taking money and then giving it back to me at the end of the year. So it's not insured, um, even though I might not need that insurance. And then finally, is protection of privacy. OK, when I put money in a bank, they disclose all of that, like all of the forms I sign. They're saying, hey, we're going to, to do anti-money laundering provisions. We're going to report this to the IRS. OK, if you're banking with a large bank in the in the United States, chances are they're a shareholder in the Federal Reserve Bank, which means they're part of this whole cartel. Like you're, you're literally feeding them so they can keep doing what they're doing by giving them your deposits, right? So I don't have protection from privacy with the bank. Okay, I don't have protection against privacy with Wall Street. Wall Street, most people don't know this, a lot of Wall Street brokerages sell your trade history. They sell it to hedge funds so the hedge funds can bet against you and they make a profit on your information. They're not saying all funds do this, but many different brokerages, funds, online apps do. Okay, so I don't have protection of privacy there. Okay, and then same thing with the IRS. Like they're the people I would be protecting my privacy from. Okay, so I don't have protection of privacy because if I had protection of privacy, they wouldn't have my money in the first place, right? So these are all the benefits, like safety benefits of why I would put money in the sacred account, how I would use it. Now, here's the beauty of it. You may have seen this sketch before. This is good review. If I put in, let's say 10 grand into my account, Okay, let's say this is my first deposit. This money is going to grow at about a 3 to 5% annual return, tax-free. Right? So it's growing at this rate on an average annual basis, tax-free for the rest of my life. I can, at the same time as this is growing, I can borrow 70 to 90% of what I have in there. Okay, my cost of interest is generally going to be an effective interest cost of about 1 to 3%. And I'm still making a positive three to 5% while that happens, right? For me, this is the icing on the cake. I need to save money anyways, right? So if I put it in a sacred account and I don't put it in the bank, I don't put it with Wall Street, I don't give it to the IRS, it is guaranteed to grow. It's guaranteed against loss. It's got all these different protections and things on it that help me, okay? And I basically can use that at the same time. I can't do this with the bank. Okay, I can't do this with Wall Street. I can't do this with the IRS. I can't borrow against it, have it growing while I use it and still get the growth on the money while I use it and have the interest cost be lower than what I'm, than what I'm earning on the policy. Okay, so this is why. This is the reason why we would put money in the sacred account. Now, you might look at this and you're like, okay, cool, but why aren't more people doing this? Well, the problem is, is, is the people who are doing it, we don't know about, okay? So here are some of the people who are doing this. Ray Kroc did this. This is how he got started with Walt, with uh, McDonald's. Walt Disney did this. This is how he built the theme park Disneyland. Okay, J.C. Penney did this. This is how he kept his store J.C. Penney open. Uh, we have who else on this list? Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, most people didn't know this. When Teddy Roosevelt died, um, he had about a million dollars in today's equivalent in cash value and a whole life policy with New York Life Insurance Company. Okay, Teddy understood this. This is in the early 1900s. Probably one of them for, as far as presidents go. I think the coolest one we've ever had, right? So, so he had one. Uh, Joe Biden has six of them. Okay, the uh, Rockefellers. 
they actually have a requirement if you're a trust uh, beneficiary, you have to have one of these policies. Uh, let's see who else has this. We got Ray Kroc, Walt Disney, uh, Stanford University, Foster Farms. I mean, the list goes on and on, guys. I can keep going. And then we have, you know, another uh, different list, about 3,000 of the largest banks in the United States. Collectively, these banks have over $200 billion in cash value in whole life insurance policies. Right? Now, when I looked at this, because my brother-in-law at Thanksgiving on, at the dinner table didn't know what this is called, I'm like, oh, no one does this. Okay, well, the people I'm giving my money to do this. I'm currently giving most of my money to banks. Banks use this, right? Like this is something that I need to look at and understand. Like I, I have the ability here to mimic the wealthy. If I don't use that ability, I can't be like, why does nobody do this? It's kind of like looking at like most of your friends and being like, why don't more people work out? And then you look at a bodybuilder and all of the bodybuilders who do. And it's like, okay, well, apparently more people work out than I thought. I'm just talking to the wrong crowd. And it's why it's important to be on webinars like this. Okay. So here's why, here's who uses it. We've talked about what we use it for. Now I want to talk about why we would max out a sacred account. So the way a sacred account works, guys, is it's going to have two different levels of contributions. Okay. So we're going to have what's called our scheduled. Scheduled contributions. And we're going to have what's called unscheduled. Okay. So scheduled contributions, generally speaking, on an upper level, we can get anywhere from 15 to 25% of our annual income. As a scheduled contribution. Okay, 15 to 25% of annual income is a scheduled contribution. So that means either on a monthly basis or on an annual basis, let's say that I make $100,000. I could put $25,000 per year into a policy, okay? That's that's what this means, okay? So I've got 15 to 25%. So again, if I've got 100K of income, I can at a maximum put maybe 25K into a policy, right? So now I'm gonna have this payment. It's either gonna be you know $2,083 a month for the next 12 months, or I'm gonna put 25K in per year one time. However I do that is totally fine, but this is my schedule contribution. Now, the more income I earn and the less other life insurance I have, the more I can put into my sacred account. And this is the other thing we look at. So generally speaking, an insurance company might insure you up to 30 times your annual income, right? So if I make that $100,000 per year as an example, okay, $100,000 times 30 is 3 million. So they're going to give me $3 million of coverage tops. My contribution is based on my death benefit, okay? So here's how this works. Like when I put in money, that's a contribution. That contribution gives me death benefit. So if I can only get $3 million worth of death benefit, then I'm looking at, okay, well, how do I maximize the amount of contributions I can put into my account with that ratio of death benefit? Okay, now everyone's death benefit cost is gonna be a little bit different. The younger you, you're, the younger you are, the healthier you are, the lower the cost of the death benefit. Right. And so, you know, when I look at this, I'm looking at I've got a total pie of three million. But if I own other insurance, let's say that I have a group life insurance policy at work. Um, I've got an IUL that I bought some from from some guy who joined a multi-level marketing company one time. Uh, you know, I've got uh, another whole life policy that my brother in law sold me for, um, you know, when I when I died for burial expenses for that short time he worked at Northwestern Mutual. But I've got all these policies out. And let's say that this totals up to, you know, $500,000 total in coverage. This means when I apply for a sacred account, they're not going to give me the full 3 million. They're going to say, you already used up half a million dollars of your pie. We are going to give you 2.5. Okay. Because they're giving me 2.5, this lowers my contribution. Even if I have the income to afford it, check this out. Even if my income is high enough to afford it, they're going to say, no, you cannot have more than the allowed death benefit. And they actually all do communicate. Our companies and these guys, they communicate. So they know what you have in force. They know what you have with other companies, right? So if I have another policy out, that actually inhibits my ability to maximize my MEC line. 
So when I did the sacred account, I got rid of my, my other insurances. I got rid of my term life insurance. Yeah, I didn't have any IUL. I was smarter than that. I didn't have any group insurance. I was smarter than that. But I got rid of my other stuff because I was like, I want the most money I can put into my policy. So I'm going to get rid of the other stuff in order to do that. Right. So this is how you get the death benefit base. This is how you get the schedule contribution. Uh, and then based on this, you also have what's called your unscheduled. And I'm going to talk about what that means in a second. Okay. So let me clear up some space. And this is a little bit more on the technical side, but it's important to understand this, especially if you have a policy or you're considering setting one up. Uh, just because you know you're going to run into this and, and you're going to wonder like where did that where did that limit come from or how do I maximize it or how do I get more into it or what happens next can I get another policy if I used up the first one okay so I want to make sure we cover those questions today the next one is unscheduled so this is going to be done through something called paid up additions okay paid up additions is insurance jargon it means that I can put in additional money throughout the year on an unscheduled basis most of that money is going to go to cash value. Right. So this is directly to cash value. Cash value is the savings account in the insurance. Right. So my unscheduled and my scheduled make up my total contribution limit. Okay. Also known as my MEC line. MEC line is also insurance jargon. It's nonsense. You don't need to know much about it other than the fact that that's your total contribution limit. Okay. My MEC line is the maximum I can put in for the year. Okay, so my MEC line, typically my, my total annual limit, it's going to be about three to five times my scheduled premium. Okay, about three to five times. Okay, so if I'm putting in $25,000 in base in scheduled contributions, then my total MEC limit is probably going to be somewhere in the range of 75 to 150K. Hi, Samson, do you need something? This is, this is my buddy, Samson. You guys probably can't see him. He's hanging out on the couch with me today. Um, so we could put anywhere from, from 75 to maybe 150K, right? And so this is going to be total. So we've already got 25 of this scheduled, right? So if I've got a MEC limit of 75K, I'm already committing 25 into the policy. This means that I'm going to have a difference on this design of about $50,000, okay? So here... I would have a difference that I can put in an additional contributions of 50K. Okay, on this one, I would have an additional difference of 125, right? The math here just being 150 minus the 25 I'm already going to be doing, right? So this is this is important to know and to understand just because of the fact that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be using this. I want to put more and more money into it. So if I understand how it's built going into it, I can be like, good, I want to maximize the money I can put in. Or after the fact, let's say I put in what I can put in now. It wasn't the max. It was what I could start with today. I want to know, can I set up more? Okay. So let's say that I do max this out. First of all, why? Why would I max this out? If I set up $150,000 MEC limit and I've only got to put in 25K, why would I put in more? Okay. And, and, and this question comes up as a function of not understanding that the sacred account is a form of saving money, right? Like it's like, it's like saying I earn more income. Why would I keep it? just because you should like that's how you invest it if you don't keep it you can't invest it that's what that comes down to now the question then is well where would i keep it okay do i want to put it in my 401k where i can't use it till i'm 60 it's going to go to wall street all the things we talked about today that's the first place i could put it or i'm going to or am i going to put it in a bank account where they're going to pay me 2.24 percent interest and they're going to loan all of the money out or invest it in foreign currency or stocks or whatever they're going to do with it they're putting my money at risk and paying me none of the return. Or am I going to do something like overpay in taxes so the IRS can keep it all year and then give me, you know, a $4,000 refund where I celebrate not knowing that they just stole from me, right? Or am I going to pay down my mortgage and give it to the bank where I can't pull it out again unless I borrow the money from them or sell the house, right? Like none of those are places I'm excited to put money. I want to put it somewhere where it's going to do all the things we talked about so far today. Okay, so that's why I would design this to where I can put in unscheduled contributions. Okay, now this works a little bit differently with different insurance companies. So um, some companies are going to give you, these are called unscheduled. We talked about unscheduled. They're going to give you the ability to do unscheduled deposits or contributions. Some of them are going to do this anytime. Okay, they're going to do this anytime. Some of them are going to do this they're going to give you two to three opportunities per year. 
Okay, some of them are going to give you one opportunity per year. And so it's important to understand, like, what am I going for in a, in a policy, right? So if I'm in a company where I can put contributions in any time, that's very flexible. Okay, so there's not a lot of, of consideration I need to put into like planning because I know I can just drop the money in whenever, just like a checking account. If I'm with a company that says, hey, there are two or three windows or opportunities per year that you can put money in, then there's a little more planning involved in that. I need to make sure that I have the money. I understand when those times are. I get that money in on time. Okay. And if I'm with a company that says, hey, it's once a year, you know, then I need to make sure I have, a, have that money saved up. And then I would basically set aside throughout the year in my bank account. And then at that one year marker, I dump it into my policy. Right. So, so these would be things to consider. And I would do this because I want to do any of the following things that we mentioned earlier. I want to pay off debt. So I'm going to build up more money in my policy so I can borrow against it and pay off debt. That's the first thing. Or I might do it for the second reason, I'm building up reserves. So I'm not really going to touch it yet. It just is my six months of reserves is going to stay there. Okay, so that's the second thing. The third thing I'm going to do is maybe self-finance a large purchase. Okay, I might be buying a car. I might be buying a house. I might be buying marketing for my company or I might be investing in personal development, right? And so then I would save up money till I hit that number and then I would borrow against it and do that as well. Or it might be investing. I want to do a real estate deal. So then I put money in the policy till I've got enough for the real estate deal. Okay. The neat thing is, is no matter what's happening, regardless of which reason I'm putting money into the policy, I'm earning a three to 5% positive return per year. And it's costing me only about one to 3% in interest. Okay. So if I'm not borrowing, I'm building up reserves. I don't need to worry about the interest because I didn't take a loan, right? But I am getting the growth every year. Okay. If I'm putting it in there for paying off debt, I'm paying off the debt. I'm still earning three to 5% of my money. While I do that, my interest cost is only about one to 3%. So I'm making a positive profit margin here on the long run. Uh, and I'm handling my debt as well. Same thing with self-financing a large vehicle or something of that nature. I'm saving myself from having a car payment and paying interest to a bank or using up my cash and not having the future value of it. Investing, I'm making you know eight, ten, twelve percent on my money investing, and also an additional three to five percent on top of that before my interest and fees, right? So these are all reasons why I would use it. Now, the next thing I want to cover from here is what do I do once I maxed out my policy? Okay, so let's say that I had my MEC limit, you know, at one twenty-five, and I put in the full one twenty-five. Okay, and I'm done for the year. Right. What would I do here? So the first thing I look at is I would look at, can I open up another policy on myself? Okay. And there's two questions I'm going to ask myself. I'm going to ask, what's my income? Okay. And I'm going to ask how much existing life insurance do I have? Okay. Cause I know my income. I know that they're going to give me 15 to 25% of my income. So if I'm only putting, let's say, 15% of my income into my policy now, and I've put in, I put it in all the way up to the MEC limit. And I could do another 10% because it's 25. Now I know I've got enough income to fund a new policy with that additional 10% of my income. Right? So that's just basic, simple math. The second thing is if my income has gone up, I know that they're going to give me a multiple. So like I said, they might do 20 to 30 times my income maximum. So if I'm doing 20 to 30 times a larger number, then now the pie got bigger on how much existing insurance I can have versus what I still can get. Okay. And then the, the, the second part here is, do I have other policies? So let's say that my income didn't go up and I've got that 100,000. Okay. 100K income, and I can get 30 times this in death benefit. And so that means that I have a total pool of insurance or pie of insurance of $3 million. Okay, so I'm going to look at this. I'm going to say, okay, well, let's say on the existing policy, I put in 2 million of this pie. And so that means I've got $1 million left in allowable coverage, right? So I can have a million dollars. I could still put life insurance in force on. Do I have other stuff? Like I said, do I have a term policy? Do I have index universal life? Do I have some of these other tools and, and features? And if I do... I might be looking at replacing those because if I get rid of them, I free up up to a million dollars in death benefit that I can have on my new policy. And it reduces the amount of existing insurance that I have in force, thus increasing the, the number that I can put into a new policy. See what I'm saying there? So, you know, I'm going to look at, okay, if I can replace an existing insurance, let's say that I do a million dollars in coverage and that gives me another, 
you know, another $12,000 a year, for example, completely made up numbers here, but let's say that gives me another $12,000 a year that I can fund a policy with. So that's my, my, my scheduled contribution. We talked about, we can get three to five times that. Okay. So 12,000, if I can get three to five times that, that means on average, I can probably put in, you know, 12 K my mech limit is going to be potentially 48 K. And so I can put in an additional 36 K in, in unscheduled contributions on top of this. Not to mention, I can also do a lump sum. So if I have a lump sum of money, the lump sum often can get put in without really impacting my annual contributions and my unscheduled uh, my unscheduled PUAs. Okay, so I have to be thinking with this. And now you can see why you need to have a general working knowledge of this. You don't need to be the expert. You need to know enough to say, hey, I think my income went up. Can I set up another policy? Or, hey, I have a, I have a half a million dollar term policy. If I replace that or cancel it, can I put more coverage and force on my sacred account and increase my contributions? Right. And I can keep doing this over and over and over on myself until, until I have maxed out my income. And my income keeps growing, it's never going to max out. And the same thing as, as soon as I've maximized the existing life insurance, which again, if my income keeps growing, the amount of insurance force I can have keeps going up. So the trick to this is to always earn more income. Okay. Now let's say that I did max these things out. What are my options? Okay. What are my options if I did max these out? I would look at the following. I would look at, can I put insurance and coverage on my spouse? Can I put insurance and coverage and force on my child? Okay. Can I put insurance coverage and force on a family member? Uh, can I put insurance coverage and force on a business partner? Okay. These are the, the typically the four most common. And, and essentially what I would do here is I would structure this to where the owner of the policy is me. The insured is one of these four. Let's say it's a child. Okay, and the beneficiary is me. So now I can put coverage and force on my kid. And I can say, good, now I can put more money into that. Or I can put coverage and force covering my wife. And then I can say, good, now I can put more money into that. Or I put it on my business partner. Or I put it on my sister or whoever. Uh, and I get the ability to put more money into the policy by starting that new policy. Okay. Now, this is this is going to be looking for something called insurable interest. Insurable interest is there has to be a reason why you'd put life insurance on this person. Right? So I could I could argue with a spouse that's really easy to 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 say I could argue with the insurance company, yeah, there's insurable interest. They bring economic value to the household. So if my wife passes away or if I'm a, a female, my husband passes away and I don't have them anymore, that's going to impact me financially. So yes, I need to put life insurance coverage and force on them. Okay, and the insurance companies can say, good, makes sense. Same thing with a child. Now the rule with a child, and I saw a question about a children's policy, uh, a child can generally get 50% of the death benefit that the parents have in force. Right, which means if I have a million dollars of coverage on myself, the insurance companies generally are going to let me put one million or half a million dollars of coverage and force on my child, which is going to then dictate the contribution limit, the MEC limit, all the things we talked about today. Okay, so that's kind of a ratio they're going to look at. Family member, sometimes this is harder. Let's say you pick your sister. They're going to say, why would your sister need to have insurance coverage that, that you're the beneficiary of? Right. And so you need to have a reason for that. We need to be able to tell them something that makes sense. We can't just say, well, she's my sister. They're going to say, good, but how do you economically depend on her? Like if she dies, how does that impact your life financially? Right. So that's something we'd look at. Business partner is another easy one to prove. Okay. So the, 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 the sequence would go, I, I maximize the coverage on myself. I keep increasing my income. When the income goes up, I put more coverage and force. Right. And I keep doing that on myself. Then the second thing I would do is I would say, do I have a spouse I could put coverage on? Okay, and if I do, then I'm going to put coverage and force on my spouse and I'm going to maximize that. And if her income keeps going up, same thing, I can keep putting more and more coverage on her. Next is my child. If I have a child, I'm going to put coverage and force on my child. They're probably not earning income. If they are, great, but I don't think we're going to be able to use much of that with the insurance. Um, and so we're going to look at just the death benefit rule. Okay, so I can say, well, I have $3 million of coverage because I did step number one really, really well. So therefore, I can put $1.5 million on my child. Okay. This is a critical one because we've had some clients where they're like, Hey, let's set up, let's set up a policy on my kid. And we're like, great. Uh, and then they started themselves a really small policy, right? Like it was like $200,000 worth of coverage. 
And so the insurance company is saying, good, we can put a hundred grand on your kid. Okay. If we want to increase the number on the kid first, that individual needs to increase their personal income, then increase what they have in coverage and force on themselves. Then they can increase what they put on their child. Right. So this is what I wanted to talk about today, because this is a little bit more nitty gritty. But guys, like one of the funnest things in the world is maxing out a sacred account. Like the first time I ever did that, super cool, right? Like, like I knew I was building my own bank. I knew that all of this money was going to earn dividends and interest. I knew it had all the protections I talked about, uh, you know, and I knew that, that I could borrow against it and use it for all the things we talked about today. Right. So I do want to open this up for some questions. I know we went a little bit long on me talking and, and, uh, handling questions. What I would like to do as well is if you have not reached out to Andre in the chat, uh, be sure to do so. Or sorry, not Andre. I read, I read, uh, I read Andre and thought Rodrigo and said Andre. Um, yeah, if you if you've not reached out to Rodrigo in the chat, be sure to do so. Okay, so if Rod sent you a message, make sure you reach out, uh, connect with him for a call. Okay, so Jonathan asks, is there a way to increase the value of my child's sacred account, or is twenty five k until they are eighteen? Uh, okay, so I just answered Jonathan's question. Um, so basically, you know, the, um, the, the death benefit is based on 50% of what you have, Jonathan. So we would first want to increase your income and your death benefit. Once that's enforced, we could then go to the insurance company and say, Hey, I have more death benefits. So 50% is a larger number on my kiddo now. Um, so let's put more coverage on them. All right. It looks like Rod reached out to Beverly. Uh, so Beverly, if you check your chat, you can connect with Rod here for a call. Um, no problem, Jonathan. Glad to help out with that. Um, Rod, if you want to connect with Jonathan as well and just see if we're able to get uh, that process maybe started with him on, on if we can grow his contributions on his account. Good. I don't see any other questions today. So what I would like to do is just really quickly, I want to go back over the book. If you've not gotten a copy of this, um, I would like for you to reach out to us. You can go to jerryfetta.com. forward slash B2F promo. And this is going to give you a free copy of the book. It's also going to give you a free coaching call with Rodrigo. Okay. Rod is one of our top guys. Um, you know, he works with clients all over the country. Um, and so he's going to be able to connect with you and actually help you apply and implement what you're learning in the book. Because on this webinar today, we covered a lot more than you're usually going to see with your basic YouTube video, right? Like we went into some technical, like how is insurance built? How are contribution limits built? Because I want you to understand that but there's a lot more to it. And so that's where reading the book is going to help tremendously. Okay. Connecting with Rod for a coaching call is going to help tremendously. And then actually working with our team to implement this stuff is going to help tremendously as well. So go to jerryfetta.com forward slash B2F promo uh, and grab your copy of the book there. Um, I did see two more things come up in the chat here. Um, good. It looks like Jonathan and Rod connected. That's awesome. Um, perfect guys. So I am going to tune off for today. Then it was good to see you. Thank you for putting up with my internet connection. We should have that switched over and uh, totally fixed for next week. Um, so I appreciate everyone being patient with that. Um, I hope you guys have a great weekend. Um, and again, during the holiday season here, make sure you're still focused on your finances. A lot of people going to spend, consume, buy presents, buy gifts. That's awesome. But earn more than all of that. Save more than all of that, right? Don't leave Christmas where you gave everyone gifts and now you've got the gift of credit card debt and insolvency for the next 10 years trying to handle what you did this year. Uh, in a period of four weeks, right? So um, <laughs> thanks for watching, guys. Have a great weekend. You're very welcome. Good to see you all. And I'll talk to you next time.